Welcome to Theology.fm. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Hey, let me ask you. When you think of Genesis 1, what do you think of? Do you think Genesis 1 is a scientifically accurate account of how God created the world in six 24-hour periods? Or... Do you think Genesis 1 is a terribly misguided and backward myth from thousands of years ago, which has been completely debunked by modern science, so that anyone who believes in what Genesis 1 says today is like those who still believe the earth is flat? (laughs) Well, if you hold either one of those views, today's Theology FM show is for you. We're having... Our guest speaker today to be Greg Boyd. He's an internationally recognized theologian, preacher, teacher, apologist, and author. He's authored or co-authored dozens of books, academic articles, including the award-winning, best-selling book, Letters from a Skeptic. And he's currently writing a book. In fact, I just saw this week that he sent it off to the publishers, a book titled The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. This book breaks new ground in how we understand the violence of God in the Old Testament, and I cannot wait for it to get published. You can learn more about Greg at his website, renew.org. That's R-E-K-N-E-W dot org. Also, he has his own podcast on iTunes, which I myself listen to all the time. His books are on Amazon, Christian book distributors. You can contact Greg to his social sites on Facebook and Twitter. Links to all of these will be in the show notes. After you listen to today's message, uh, be kind if you disagree, but I think you're really going to like what he has to say. And hey, as with every show on Theology.fm, the sponsor for this show is Logos Bible Software. If you use my coupon code JMyers6 over at Logos.com, you can get 15% off your purchase. And that's off the purchase of one of their software packages, such as the gold, silver, platinum, And I just saw this week they came out with the Anglican software package. So if you're Anglican or really like reading and studying Anglican scholars and so on, then that might be the software package for you. Again, use JMyer6 to get 15% off your order. With that in mind, let's get on with the show and see what Greg Boyd has to teach us today. So you may not know this, but I have a podcast of my own. It's the One Verse Podcast. And in it, I teach through Scripture one verse at a time. In the opening episodes of the One Verse Podcast, I take a careful and detailed look at Genesis chapter 1. And basically, I show how it is impossible to read Genesis 1 with a scientific mindset. Uh, When Moses wrote Genesis 1, he wasn't thinking about science. He wasn't thinking about creationism versus evolutionism. So uh, whether you're approaching it from a scientific mindset of creationism or a scientific mindset of evolution, uh, you're approaching it from a position that Moses never would have intended. Uh, If we're going to read Genesis, especially Genesis 1, 
the way Moses intended, the way the inspired author of this text intended, the way God intended, we cannot read it with a scientific mindset. Moses was not seeking to refute evolution. So, to try to read Genesis 1 scientifically is to read Genesis 1 incorrectly. A scientific reading of Genesis 1 is not a literal reading of Genesis 1, nor is it the best reading, nor even a correct reading. So, I was thrilled this week when I heard this message from Greg Boyd, where he argues the exact same thing. Uh, In this sermon on Genesis 1, Greg Boyd argues that the real point in Genesis 1 is not to tell us how God made everything, and, and God did make everything. Greg Boyd believes that, and so do I. But Greg's point is that God made everything. And that's what Greg Boyd says Genesis 1 teaches us too. It's not how God made everything, but that God made everything. And when we approach it this way, we can see how beautiful Genesis 1 is, the the literature and the theology and the poetry. And we're able to, rather than try and fit Genesis 1 into a scientific reading, a scientific mind frame, that's never going to fit, we can appreciate Genesis 1 for what Moses is trying to say. So let's listen in to see how Greg Boyd explains this text and how we can read Genesis 1 the way Moses intended. So we're going to start here a a mini-series of sorts, a three-part series going into the summer. Um, And and we're going to focus on Genesis 1, which is foundational for the whole Bible. By the way, did you see my granddaughter up here? She was the real cute one. I don't know if you noticed that. Okay, so just... <laughs> I love that flower you had in her. That, that was cute. Okay, so uh, we're looking at Genesis 1, which is foundational of the whole Bible. This just gets laid out here. Uh, we're calling this series Creation Matters, because creation matters, and we're talking about creation matters. Isn't that so clever? A double entendre. And this message today, we're entitling That, Not How, for reasons that I hope will become clear in about five minutes. Uh, the topic deals with... I, it's increasingly important here in this day. The whole creation-evolution controversy. Let's get that off the table uh, before we get into this. The creation-evolution thing. Now, the thing was, Mary Dan Sickle, who is our uh, MC here once in a while, she says, you know, normal churches have a Mother's Day sermon. And I said, yeah, well, this will be a Mother's Day sermon. She made me a bet. Uh, that she said, I, I bet you can, I'll bet you a chipotle salad that you can't turn a sermon on creation and evolution into a Mother's Day sermon. Now, I love chipotle salads, and I know you can turn any sermon into any sermon, so I said, bet, bet's on. And uh, she just doesn't realize how easy this is to do, because see, uh, I'm going to be talking about how God works through processes, natural processes. God does it, that he does it is there, but how he does it, he works through natural processes, right? And what natural process and bringing life into being is more important than the nine months we spend gestating in our mother's womb. And mothers, you are at the center of God's plan to work through processes, that's why we love you and you're so important in the kingdom of God. Mother's Day sermon, there you go, I'll take, I'll go light on the beans, Mary, and uh, an extra serving of, of uh, dressing, that would be nice. There you go. A little force, perhaps. But, okay, let's start off with this. In 1925, there was a lawsuit brought against this guy. Uh, in the state of Tennessee, it was against the law to teach evolution in public schools. I was told last service by somebody that there's still a few states that have that law. It was against the, the law to teach evolution, and this guy, uh, John Thomas Scopes, um, uh, taught this, and so the state of Tennessee sued him in 1925. And um, it was, got to be known as the Scopes trial. It got huge. It got national and international attention because 
uh, the, the Tennessee the state, the prosecutor, uh, took on this William uh, uh, Bryan, William Jennings Bryan, who was a uh, famous attorney. He was a three-time presidential candidate, and he was, he was a big name, so they brought on the top gun. So then the ACLU got involved on the side of the defense, defending scopes, and they brought in uh, Charles uh, Clarence Darrow, who was also a really famous uh, lawyer. I read that he had not lost the case. So this was big. It got national attention all over the place. On day seven, it was the turning point of the trial because Clarence Darrow did something that was absolutely unprecedented, and that is he, the defense attorney, called the prosecuting attorney, William O'Brien, uh, called him uh, uh, to take the stand and began to interrogate him. And it looked something like this. How old do you think this rock is? I am more interested in the rock of ages than the age of rocks. Yeah. Well, Dr. Page of Oberlin College tells me that this rock is over 10 million years old. Well, well Mr. Drummond, you finally managed to sneak in some of that scientific testimony after all. <laughs> now, look at this, Mr. Brady. These are the fossil remains of a prehistoric marine creature lived here millions of years ago when these very mountain ranges were still submerged in water. I know the Bible gives a very fine account of the flood, but your professor is a little mixed up in his dates. That rock is no more than 6,000 years old. Well, how do you know? I know because a fine biblical scholar, Bishop Usher, has determined for us the exact date and hour of the creation. It occurred in uh, 4004 B.C. Yeah, well, that's Bishop Usher's opinion. It's not an opinion. It's a literal fact. Thank you. Which the good bishop arrived at by the careful computation of the ages of the prophets as set down in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he determined that uh, the Lord began the creation on uh, October 23rd, 4004 B.C. at uh, uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time? <laughs> Rocky Mountain Time. It wasn't daylight savings time, was it? Because the Lord didn't make the sun until the fourth day. That is correct. Now, that first day, was that a 24-hour day? The Bible says it was a day. Yeah, but there was no sun. Uh, I mean, how could you tell? The Bible says it was a day. Yeah, but a literal day, a normal day, a 24-hour day? I don't know. Well, what do you think? I do not think about things I do not think about. Well, do you ever think about the things you do think about? <laughs> Isn't it possible that that first day could have been 25 hours long. There was no way to measure it, no way to tell. Could it have been 25 hours? It is possible. Ah. Oh. So you interpret that the first day recorded in the book of Genesis could be of undetermined length. I merely wish to state that the day referred to is not necessarily a 24-hour day. It could have been 25, it could have been 30 hours. It could have been a month, or a year, or a hundred years, or ten million years. Dum dum dum. So, uh, because this trial had such notoriety, um, and because Dar Darrow was so brilliant in his interrogation. Every, the consensus is that he pretty much made uh, Brian look like a fool. And Christianity took a huge PR hit because of that trial. 
a good percentage of Christians at the time were what are called young earth creationists who held the view that was under, uh, that, had, that uh, uh, Darrow had turned into really, uh, he was prosecuting it. The brilliant thing he did is he turned a trial that was supposed to be about the law and whether Scopes broke it and turned it and put, put a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 on trial. And he did that brilliantly. And um, because it was so devastating, it, 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 the church and the faith took a big hit as a result of that trial. Now, the amazing thing is that this debate is still with us. Ninety years later, this debate is still going on. In fact, all, in, all indications are that it's picking up steam. Uh, this group, they're called Young Earth Creationists. Most don't hold that it was, the earth was created in 4004 B.C. on October 23rd, 9 a.m., uh, but they do hold that the earth can't be older than 10,000 years old, which, of course, massively conflicts with the standard evolutionary theory that says that the universe is about 14 billion years old and the earth is 4.6 billion years old. So you have an enormous discrepancy there. But this young earth creationist group, some of their, their organizations are very well funded, like Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis, very well funded. And so they're able to produce a lot of literature and send it out free. And so they're always sending this literature out to churches and schools, you know, pushing the, this perspective. I get some of this literature. It gets sent to me for free, so they're obviously not very discriminating on who they send it to. You see, they just send it out, and it's having an impact. So this debate is, 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 is picking up steam. But here's the thing. At Woodland Hills Church, we think it is very, very important that Jesus' followers believe that God created the world, and that he created human beings, and that he created human beings in his image, which rules out any idea that that uh, all of this is just the result of time and chance and natural selection. It rules out atheistic evolution for sure. So that God did it is central. How God did it, we don't think it's central at all. Um, and so we have a broad tent sort of policy here. Uh, we, we don't take a stand on how he did it, whether you think it was literal uh, six, seven days, whether you think it was uh, 14 billion years. That's not something we're going to argue about. Um, that he did it is, is what's all important. So we have here a, a variety of pr- perspectives. We've, we've got young earth creationists here, and I, I thank God for them. And, and I have dialogues with them. I don't share their convictions. They don't share mine, but we have discussions. And, and they're, they're not dogmatic about it. They don't make it a litmus test of orthodoxy, and that's all I ever ask for. And that's wonderful. And then we've got many others who, like myself, hold that God created human beings through some form of evolution. And there's variations within that. In fact, we have a handout, if you're interested, uh, at the Hub, a handout of sort of the positions here at Woodland Hills Church and how they all contrast with atheistic evolution. So you might want to pick that up after the service. Uh, check out this, this sort of handout. So that kind of diversity is good, and I thank God for it. But here's, here's the concern that brings forth this sermon. And the, the team that I work with to, to uh, form these sermon series with they thought it was important for this reason. There's a general perception out there, especially among Christians, widespread perception that, that uh, Christianity and evolution are not compatible. If you have faith in Christ or faith in the Bible, well, then you have to reject the theory of evolution. Uh, one poll said that about around 60% of evangelicals hold that view, that they're incompatible. And in the Bible belt, it's closer to 80%. Okay, so it's incompatible. Now, here's the concern about that, is that, in geology and biology and paleontology and cosmology, major branches of science, they all operate within an evolutionary framework. It's hard to be a geologist or a paleontologist or biologist and not accept that as a starting point. And so what happens is that the perception that the Christian faith is, is incompatible with evolution gets translated into a perception that the Christian faith is incompatible with science. The problem with that is this. 
our culture, Western culture in general, is, it continues to grow in its respect for science, especially among younger people. It's got a lot of credibility. It does a lot of good things. So respect for science increases. But if people perceive that the Christian faith is antithetical or incompatible with science, well, then as their respect for science increases, their respect for the Christian faith decreases. And this is one of the major reasons why, according to one study, one of the top reasons why young people are walking away from the church is because of the perception that being a Christian means you have to reject the findings of science. It's one of the reasons why unbelievers uh, uh, don't give the Christian faith serious consideration. They assume that it means you have to accept that the earth is 10,000 years old. And for most people, that's just not uh, a, a plausible position to hold. And so as evangelists and missionaries, and all, all of us, who follow Jesus, our evangelists and missionaries in whatever culture we find ourselves, this has to be a concern of ours. This is a major wall. Whatever your personal views are, there is this major wall, which I will argue is absolutely unnecessary, that is barring people from the faith and driving people out of the faith. In fact, one of the reasons I'm passionate about this topic is because I, as a young Christian, I fell victim to this perception that Christianity and evolution theory and science were, utter, were, were incompatible. I was saved, and I've shared this before, but it bears repeating, uh, in this, at the age of 17 in this fundamentalist Pentecostal church. And we were taught that everything in the Bible is literally true, including Genesis 1. I had a pastor, I remember once he had a sermon where he says, if Genesis 1 isn't literal, if those aren't literal days, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. About a year after I got into this church, I went to the University of Minnesota, and the first class I took... Actually, I took it in the summer school before I entered the school full-time. It was a course in evolutionary biology. I wanted to get my science requirement met, and so I chose that course. And I chose it intentionally because I had read three whole books defending young earth creationism against evolution, anti-evolution books. And I, I, I had my ammo. I had my note cards. I was going to go into this class, yes, and I was going to, I was going to refute that professor, and I was going to convert that class. Hallelujah. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way. God did use it to humble me greatly, um, but it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Uh, I mean, the first day of class, I raised an objection. Whenever I saw an opportunity, I'd, well, what about this? What about second law of thermodynamics? What about that? And, and this, this professor would very nicely, and that bugged me because I thought he would be evil and mean, but he would very nicely would just kind of carve me up. Just one, two, three. It was like, oh, oh, boom, boom, boom. It didn't even take him long. And, and the next day, I'd have another zinger. He just, choo, choo, choo. I was like throwing tomatoes to a swordsman. Choo, choo. You know? And he was real gracious about it. Like the kids started getting irritated with me. Will you shut up and let him talk? But he would defend me. Oh, I hated it. He would defend me. Oh, no, it's good to question things. That's how science goes forward. You know, keep on doing it. I think he just enjoyed dicing me up. Um, but see, here's the thing. After about a few weeks, I ran out of ammunition. And that means I began to suspect that the Bible was a whole book of lies. And by the time I got done with my first semester at the U, I had completely lost my faith. Not just because of that, but that was a major reason. Um, because I was convinced the evidence just seemed to suggest that there's some kind of process leading up to us. And the earth is much older than 10,000 years, and I couldn't deny that. Now, I wanted to believe. It wasn't like I was running away from God to hide some moral sin in my life or something. I was so hungry. I loved that that year that I I, I had my faith. Man, to have a purpose in life and a meaning, and and you feel like you know the truth and you're going to live forever. Oh, I just love that. And to go back to being an atheist where you think life is meaningless, there's no purpose, death ends everything, it's just a sad story. I I went through existential hell for about a year. It was just miserable. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. 
Now, I obviously slowly worked my way back into the faith. I'm up here talking to you right now. Um, and the kind of version I came back to was one that was, didn't see science or evolution as incompatible with the Christian faith, obviously. But see, most people don't work their way back to it. And I've had countless discussions with, with folks who have either walked away from the faith or won't give the faith serious consideration because they think it's incompatible with science and more specifically with evolution theory. And so what I want to do today is simply open up space in our thinking. Whatever your personal views are, I want to open up space in our thinking uh, to, as to how one might, for biblical reasons, I'm not even going to bring in the science stuff, but for biblical reasons, why one might think that Genesis 1 is not meant to be taken literally. I'll share my reasons why I don't think, for, on the basis of the Bible, why it shouldn't be taken as a literal, let alone scientific account. Now, I've never done this here. and people, Sometimes people have asked me why. And here's why. Because I don't want to come across as, as being, trying to beat up young earth creationists. This isn't an anti-young earth creationist sermon, all right? Um, I, I love you, young earth creationists. I, I, I've had discussions with you. You're thoughtful. You're reflective. I, I, it's, it's great. No problems with that. But see, I would even like you to know the biblical reasons why someone might disagree with you so that if you confront somebody for whom this is an issue getting into the faith, you're able to, even though you don't yourself believe this, show them an alternative way of looking at it. Because never should this be an obstacle to someone coming to, to, to Christ. Uh, it's just unnecessary. So I'll share my... my Three reasons, or three sets of reasons, why, biblical reasons, why I don't think Genesis 1 is meant to be taken literally. You don't have to agree with this, but I just want you to have it in your, in your toolbox, so when you need it, you can help people get over this hump and uh, get in the kingdom. Or keep, I talked to you know, two young people in the last service, for whom this was, uh, like, ninth graders, for whom this was a huge issue. Like, they, they were really wondering, can I go on and believe in the Bible? Ninth grade. So th- this is important. And parents, this is really going to be, if you've got kids, you're, please equip them. Uh, so that they understand that we're not at war with science. We love science. God uses science. And, uh, and, and that there's nothing incompatible with believing in the Bible and believing in um, uh, evolutionary theory. So, first of all, number one, there are some indications that the days of Genesis 1 aren't meant to be 24-hour days. For one thing, the word for day in Hebrew is yom, yom. And... Um, uh, it sometimes refers to a literal day, but it can also refer to a season or even an epoch. Any blocked out period of time, any given period of time, uh, can be called a day. So, for example, in Proverbs 25, it says, Like the cold of snow in the time, that's the word yom, in the time of harvest are faithful messengers to those who send them. Now here it clearly doesn't mean a single 24-hour day, it means a season. And that just shows you how flexible that word is. So when you come up upon the word day... In, in the Bible, uh, it'll be careful. It can mean a little 24-hour day, but it can also mean season or epic or, or any number of other things. A second thing is this, and this was brought up in the clip, and that's that um, uh, the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day. And the question is, how, how do you have a 24-hour period, a day and a night, before you have the things that mark out the day and night? In fact, that's the reason the Lord created those things. Well, here, let's just read it. Genesis 1, chapter... Verse 14. It says, where is it? Here it is. Here it is. Uh, there it is. And God said, I should just turn the screen, crying out loud. Let there be lights in the dome of the sky. Why? To separate day from night. This is the first time you're going to have day and night being separated. You had light and darkness separated already, but not day and night. 
And let them be for signs, the word can be translated there, markings, demarcations for the seasons and for the days and for the years. The reason we have, purpose why God created the sun and the, and the moon and the stars, at least from the perspective of this, this chapter, is to keep time, to mark out the times of the days and the nights and the seasons and the years and things like that. So clearly you can't be marking out the times, and the seasons, and the years prior to this. So how can you have 24-hour periods in days one, two, and three? Uh, it's, it's an indication that, that it, it's uh, not meant to be taken as a literal thing. The other question you've got to ask is this. Uh, someone asked me this uh, earlier. How is it that in Genesis it says, you know, even after the first day, and the morning and the evening were the first day? And then the evening and the morning were the second day. You have evening and mornings. But you don't even have days and nights until day four. What's up with that? What up? Good question. In fact, impossible question. Unanswerable question. If you're taking this as a literal scientific account. But a little bit here, I'm going to suggest that it's not meant to be taken that way. It's more of a poem. Very, very important, God-inspired poem. It serves a very important function. But the function isn't to satisfy our curiosity about how old the earth is. Or the, 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 the details of how we all came about. In poetry, you don't mind these kind of things. It's a, we'll see there's, there are literary reasons why the author speaks this way. Why there's light and darkness before there's, there's, there's even a sun and the moon and stars. Uh, there, there's literary reasons, but they're, they're not at all scientific reasons. Okay. And in any case, I could say this is a third point, even though I didn't plan on it. But, you know, Scripture says that a day uh, is like a thousand years of the Lord, a thousand years like a day. And in, in, Hebraic, in the Hebrew, Hebraic worldview, whenever you come across the word thousand, just think indefinite, because that, that, was, that was just a way of saying on and on and on. And so, so we've we, we got to know that he doesn't measure the time the, the way we do. I think there's sequence in God's experience, but, but uh, he, he's not tied into some kind of 24-hour period of time. All right, so his day can be, man, it can be epis. It can be billions of years. Okay, that's the first argument. Second argument. Some biblical depictions of creation cannot be taken literally, and no one does take them literally. Uh, to set this, this argument up, I, I want to say this. When, when God speaks to us, he's got to come down to our level. Wherever people are at, at a given time, in a given culture, he has to speak their language, enter into their categories, because that's what communication is all about. Um, he has to get into their, 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 their frame of reference. Calvin said that when God speaks to us in Scripture, he talks baby talk. He has to, he has to be like goo goo gaga. He, it's such a distance for him to travel to speak to us. He talks a child's language. And people who think that miracles no longer happen, I just quoted Kelvin in a positive reference. All right? So (laughs) don't say I never quote Kelvin positively. I did one time. All right. So so he has to come down and speak into our language. It's a little bit like this. Uh, Last week I was playing with my granddaughter, Aria, and um, we have a game that we like to play uh, where I, I'll give a riddle, and she has to guess what it is. And after three tries or so, if she doesn't get it, then I slime mold her. Slime molding is when I tickle her all over. We call it slime molding. I have no reason, uh, and I don't know why. But, uh, okay, so I, I, I give her a riddle. On top of the mountain where the cold winds blow, I blow my top, and down a river flows. She didn't get that. So I gave another one, something about, Hot juice flowing down from me. I don't know what it was. But 
I, after several attempts and after I slime-molded her, it turns out she didn't know what the word volcano meant. Did you guess it was a volcano on the basis of that riddle? I have to make these things up on the spot, you know, and they have to rhyme, otherwise it just doesn't work. So, you know, sometimes it's a little stretch. So anyways, I was talking about a volcano, but she didn't know what a volcano was, so I tried to explain it to her. Well, you see, there's these uh, plates under the surface of, of, of the earth, and, and they shift sometimes, and under, under that there's this molten lava, this magma, liquid magma, and, and it's, it's, it's hot because there's pressure on the, in the, at the core of the earth, so this is really hot, and, and it's getting pressure out, and sometimes it can worm its way to the top of the surface, and once in a while it'll pop through, and the fire comes out with this lava, and then when it cools, it forms like a clump all around where the hole was, but then when it comes out again, because the pressure builds up again, well then, then, then that, that cools on top of that the hump, and then that cools on top of that hump, and, and before you know it, after a couple thousand years, you get a mountain. It keeps on blowing out lava every once in a while, and that's called a volcano. And this four-year-old looked at me like, are you using glossolalia, Grandpa? <laughs> Speaking in tongues? Uh, she didn't get this. It's like, what are you? Uh, she clearly just had no clue what I was talking about. And I was trying to you know, get it down to her level. So I tried another tactic. I said, do you ever like you just get so angry you want to scream? Or so frustrated you want to scream? And she goes, yeah. Which I know to be true because I see it quite often in her. So... Um, I said, well, that's kind of what's going on here. And she goes, mom says it's blowing off steam. And I said, well, see, that's what the mountain's doing. It's, it's, it's got all this pressure inside. It's just got to sometimes scream, blow off steam. And that, that worked for her. Although she wasn't clear how, come, how, how are mountains getting frustrated. <laughs> but you do the best you can. So God has to talk our language. He comes down. And this is why, uh, frankly, there's some scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. There's things that aren't scientifically accurate. Because if God was trying to be scientifically accurate, he couldn't communicate what he wants to communicate. He wants to communicate that, not how. That God is the one who's in charge of all this. That's what he wants to communicate. But if he got into the how by trying to teach accurate science, can you imagine God going to these old folks in the Old Testament and saying, well, see, the earth is this giant ball, and it's 25,000 miles in circumference. It's the third from the sun, 93 million from, from the sun. Do you know it takes eight seconds for the light of the sun to get to the earth? And that's part of a whole solar system, which is part of a whole galaxy, which has billions of stars, and that's only one galaxy among billions of galaxies. They would be... Whatever else God wants to teach them, they'd be like, what? what? Might as well talk about quantum uncertainty and Heisenberg principle to them. It's just not going to get through. So he has to enter into their view of the world to communicate that he's the one and set aside the issue of how he does it, hoping that later readers will understand what he was up to. So here's a few things in the Bible that every, we read these things and we know they can't be literal. Uh, and we have to we realize that God was accommodating the perception of the time. So for example... Everybody in the ancient Near Eastern world, the ancient Near Eastern world is that whole culture around the Israelites, the Egyptians, Babylonians, all those folks, are, are that whole region is called the ancient Near Eastern world. And their view of the world was they have a whole lot in common. We can study, we can know that by studying different literature. They all believed the earth was held up by pillars. And so we read many times in the Bible, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now if you ask... Well, what are the pillars on? Good luck with that. They don't have an answer. But there's pillars under the earth. And when, when, he, when the pillars shake, that's how we get earthquakes. It's just how, the, how they viewed the world. That God holds the world in order. That's what he wants to communicate. God is the one who's in charge of the order. To do that in this culture is to talk about the pillars, because that's what they believe. And then uh, they saw the earth, the, the sky is being hard. We actually have drawings of their view of the world. And it's like a, it's like a, a amphitheater. You know, there's a high, a hard sky, a, a hard sky up there. And the pillar, the earth is on these pillars. And so we read, for example, in Job 37, Eliphaz says to Job, Can you, like God, 
spread out the skies, hard as a molten mirror. They thought the sky was hard. Now, if you didn't know any better, you'd think that too. You look up there, it looks like a giant dome. They didn't know that, there's, that we're on a planet and that there's all this space out there. They thought that it was a dome. That it was hard. And it had to be hard, they thought. Because we know that water comes from up above, and so it must be holding up a lot of water. And, and, and this we even get in, in, in Genesis 1. The purpose for the sky is to hold up the water. So it's got to be hard. So it says in Genesis 1, the very chapter we're talking about, God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above. The word vault there is rakia in Hebrew. Rakia. And um, it literally means a, a, a solid expanse. Any solid expanse could be called a rakia. It didn't have to be in a dome shape. It could be in, in a flat shape. It's sometimes translated in this passage as a dome or a vault or, or firmament is, I think, actually the best one because it's firm. It's a firmament. And what the author is picturing here is at this point in creation, all you have is water. And God's going to create space now. So it's, imagine like a, a, a cookie sheet. He puts it into the water and then lifts up the water, the water above from the water below. And this is the sky. He separates the water above from the water below. So it has to be hard. How else could it do its job? Now, then you ask, how does it rain? How does the water get through then if, if it's hard? The answer is, duh, windows. Yeah, they got windows. So you read it several times in the Bible that God opened up the windows of heaven. Now, we take that as a metaphor. Um, but they, this is, to them, this was the actual view of the world. There's windows. Open up, and down comes the rain, and things like that. So I have not yet met anybody who actually believes that the sky is hard and the earth is held up on pillars and all sorts of other things that we find throughout the Bible. And so the next time somebody says to you, I believe every word of the Bible is literally true, say to them, no, you don't. You think you do, but you don't. And then show them these passages and screw them all up. All right, so, no, help them out a little bit. I'm just saying that this, 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 this concern that everything's got to be literal, we just let go of that concern. Yes, and we're talking about the resurrection and the deity of Christ and, and those kind of things. Well, that, the very genre of that literature is that it's, it's literal, it's historical. But when we're talking about this sort of thing, uh, being, being obsessed with, with keeping things literal is just not, uh, it's, it's missing the point, I think. Okay, number three. And this one takes a little more unpacking. Oh, uh, it's going to take a little less unpacking than I had hoped. Okay. It's, it, it, Vanessa talked about this a little bit several weeks ago, which is good because she laid a foundation for this. I'm going to build on it. And this is a really important point. It's going to be a reframe for a lot of folks. So get your thinking caps on. And you don't have to agree with me, but just soak it in and listen. So here's the thing. It has to do with the function of creation stories in the ancient Near East. In Babylonia, Sumeria, Egypt, all that area. It's always important to read the Bible in its cultural context. We talk about that a lot here. And studying the cultural context of a passage often sheds a lot of light on it. How words are used, that's how we know their meaning. And there's references to, to various things in the culture, various deities in the culture, or practices, or rituals, or whatever. And we only know what those are because we have other ways of referring to, we gain knowledge by studying these other cultures. Well, this is true of the creation story. We have to look at the culture around it to understand what it's about. Now, in the last 150 years, we've discovered dozens and dozens of creation stories in these other cultures. Many of them, in fact, most of them predating the biblical story. Sometimes by a lot. The most famous of these are the, the uh, Sumerian Enuma Elish, it's called. It means went on high. 
when it's translated, or the, the Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh, these t- famous creation stories. And uh, as we study these things, we find that there's, well, there's major differences that I'll talk about here in a moment. There's also really strong parallels. Like, for example, uh, in some of the stories, the creation happens in seven days. And this is a story that predates the biblical story by about a thousand years. It occurs in seven days, and in roughly the same order that we find in the Bible, including that weird thing that the light and darkness are there before we have a sun and moon and stars to, to mark them out. Um, we, we find that they have the, a shared poetic structure to them. Uh, they're written as poems, and, and uh, they have the same kind of structure. There's always a chief deity, or usually a chief deity, which, whichever deity the particular culture worships the most, and the deity has a problem to solve, and in solving that problem creates the world, and usually does that in a two-stage process, which we'll see is going to be reflected in the biblical account as well. But the most important thing that we find out about these, these, these poems in this shared culture is it has to do with their function. These folks were not interested in what we today would call science. They, they didn't worry about finding out information for information's sake. Rather, these poems, you look at how they were, when they were sung, how they were used, they addressed issues in the present. They were poems that expressed issues in the present. More particularly, they answered questions like this. They, didn't, they weren't wondering how old the earth is or what process was used to you know, scientifically explain things. Rather, they answered questions like, who are we? What are we called to do? Who do we worship? Who do we look to for protection? That's the kind of thing that, that, that these stories answered. And so they would recite them publicly to reaffirm these beliefs and practices that they have. So, for example, in the Babylonian account, Epic of Gilgamesh, you've got this god named Marduk, and he's the chief god. He got to be chief god because he beat up all the rival gods. That's how you got to be chief gods in, in the ancient Near East. So he's the chief god. Well, now he has to face the cosmic sinister being Tiamat. Uh, Tiamat, it's a she, and her name, uh, the root of her name means the deep, or the abyss, or chaos. And you find in the Bible and throughout the ancient Near Eastern world that that's the main way they symbolize evil. That's why God's always rebuking the waters or rebuking the deep. You find it throughout the Bible. So this is Tiamat. Mardu takes on Tiamat, the, the, Tiamat the, the, the chaotic one, the abysmal one. And he defeats Tiamat. And he's on his way to solving the problem. Well, actually, he solved the major problem there. But then, see, some of, the, some of the, his lower gods got killed in the process, and so he has to replace them, and that's why he creates human beings. Now, here's how he does it. And this gets a little gross, so sorry. But he first carves her up, and out of her belly, or the translation can mean her womb, he creates the hard sky. He creates a, a place for creation. And then he carves up the rest of her body and fills that place with stuff, animals, earth, and people. And people are, are created... So that already is saying something about who, who are we. We're created by the good God, the victorious God, but we're created out of the parts of an evil God. So we're partly good and partly evil. And that kind of expresses a, a, you know, an experience that most of us have, that we're never quite as good as we know we should be. Right? There's, there's this part of us that we are warring against. And this is their way of expressing it. Uh, and so she, she creates out of those body parts those sorts of things. And we're created to be slaves. We are slaves of Marduk. Our job is to feed Marduk and to feed the gods, according to the Babylonian account. Uh, we make sacrifices. The gods come down and devour those sacrifices. And we carry out their ritual duties and things like that. But the payoff is that then we, when we go to war, when Tiamat raises her ugly face again, uh, and you say, well, isn't she dead? 
yes, but no, because we're not talking about literal stuff here. We're talking about poetry. So they, the Babylonians talk, it's just like in the Bible, it talks about Yahweh defeating Leviathan, but then Leviathan's you know, going to be defeated in the future. It, it, we're not talking literal stuff here. But when Tiamat raises her ugly face again and chaos is starting to come at them, the Nile is starting to overflow or uh, their enemies are starting to come against them, they look to Marduk and his fellow warrior gods to protect them and to fight on their behalf. That's the function these songs, these poems, served. And many scholars argue, and I side with this opinion, that the Genesis story is written in that genre. It's part of that culture. It serves that function. In fact... Some scholars argue, I think compellingly, that it is written to refute those other stories, and some even argue to mock those other stories for reasons that we'll see here in in a moment. One of the things you find in the Genesis story is it shares the same poetic structure as these other ancient Near Eastern hymns. There's a problem to solve. Now, the problem in Genesis 1 is found in verse 2, where it says that now the earth was, or could be translated, and now the earth became formless and empty, Tohu abohu. And that is a negative, pejorative phrase. If you look at Jeremiah 4.24, tohu abohu describes a state after the Lord's brought judgment on it. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. That's the word to home. Some scholars argue the word to home has the same root as the word, the name for Tiamat. So we have a, may have a little Tiamat here, although Tiamat's not a monster, it's just part of the, 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 the created order. And the Spirit of God, or it could be it's the Ruach, Elohim, the, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. Now that's the problem. And what we're going to see here is that God solves this problem very much like these other poems solve the problem. He's going to, in two stages, create the world. So here's what you have. Let's, let's, let's put up the uh, chart here. So you have... Um, the problem, and then you have a solution, stage one, and a solution, stage two. The, the general problem is the, the world became formless void, tohu wabohu. So God solves, in the first three days, he solves stage one, and in, in the, the next three days, he solves stage two. He solves the problem of form in days one through three by creating space. He's always creating space. He's imposing order on the chaos. And then he's, he's, he, he solves the problem of the void, by filling the space. So on, with, with the, the problem of darkness, he confronts on day one. And he does it by creating light and separating it from the darkness. Then on day four, when he begins to fill the space, he creates the lights, the sun, and the moon, and the stars. And he created the sun to fill the space for the day and the moon and stars to fill the space of the night and to keep the times and the seasons. That's why the sun has to be created after the light. Scientifically, it makes no sense at all. Poetically, it's brilliant. And then he solves the problem of the deep, to home, by separating the deep. It's all chaotic waters, so he separates the waters above from the waters below, right? And creates that space. And that's the heavens. Now he's created the space between the waters. That's the heavens. And then on day five, he's going to fill the space. He fills the heavens, the space between the waters above and the waters below, with birds, because birds fly in that space. And then he fills the water below with fish, because fish swim in that space. And then they'll solve the problem of the submerged earth, this land that is in this Tahome, the, 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 the formless earth. And he does it by now carving out the waters that are below. He makes space for land. He pushes them aside and creates, creates land. And then he has vegetation grow on that land because he's preparing a space now for on day six to have animals and humans come and inhabit that land and they eat the vegetation. And then day seven, he takes a break. Which Hebrews, seven by the, or Hebrews 4 says he's still doing. That Sabbath day has gone on since then which again is, means it's not a literal day. 
it, it's a, the, the structure is reflected of, of the, uh, the ancient Eastern culture, and it's brilliant. But it, it's not there to answer, solve our, or respond to our scientific curiosity. It's there to answer questions like, who are we? What are we called to do? Who do we worship? And who do we trust? And here is where the Bible just hits it out of the park. What it says about those questions, and here's why some scholars think that it's actually mocking those other cultures. Because there's nothing like this in the ancient Eastern world. The structure is the same, the poetry is the same, but they fill it with completely new content. So who are we? Well, we ain't no slaves. Uh, you know, it, it, first, let's start with God. Uh, whereas in the other stories, God, the chief God, has to fight competitors to become the chief God. This story has no such thing. It just starts by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, there was God. He wasn't born like we have any other accounts. He didn't come into being. He just always was. You start with God. He's a God who's never threatened. He can't be brought out of existence, wasn't brought into existence. He just is. And he doesn't need to create out of the defeated, uh, the, the body parts of a defeated enemy to create the world and animals and people. No, he just talks. God said, let there be light. Boom, there is light. He speaks things into existence. There's nothing like this in the ancient Near Eastern world. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. It, 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 it's radical. He, this God is such, so great, he just speaks things into existence. Doesn't have to use old partners. And who are we? So that's God. Who are we? Well, in the other account, we're slaves, right? And we're made out of the evil Tiamat, right? Uh, yeah, we're partly good, but we're also partly evil. In the biblical account, God creates us, and he just says, it is good. So there's inherent goodness in human beings. Not only are we inherently good, but then he says, they, they, he says, we are made in the image of God. God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the image of God. He made them male and female, he created them. And I'll talk about the image of God next week, but, but uh, it, it, among other things, denotes royalty, royalty. We're made in the image of the eternal God who never, never began, never ends. He, he's the one, uh, we bear his image, and not just men, but women in the surrounding cultures including in, in, in ancient Hebrew culture, women were subhuman, women were property, women were bought, women were sold, women were owned by men. This author transcends his own culture and says, and this is the inspiration of God, male and female are in the image of God. That's so radical, the church hasn't caught up with it quite yet. I mean, it's, it, it, there's nothing like it in the ancient Near East. And every person we see, we know that they are royalty, they're kings and queens, they're created for that. Maybe they don't know that, they don't think like that, they don't act like that, but we know that. And that's why we treat them like that. They're created to be kings and queens. And what are we called to do? Well, kings and queens, we're called to reflect God's character as we care for the earth and the animal kingdom. Spreading his will on earth as it is in heaven. Having dominion over them the way he lovingly has dominion over us. And who do we worship and who do we trust? Well, this, this answers it. When, when, when chaos rises, when Tahome rises, when the deep is submerging us, we look to the one true God whom we worship and who he promises will protect us. The God who never began, never ended. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the God of all gods. Uh, never began, never ended. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is invariant. There's no shadow of turning. His promises cannot fail. And so we, the people of God made in his image, we look to him as the one we worship and the one that we live for, and the one that we trust in when chaos arises. That's the beauty of Genesis 1. And really, in some ways, to, to clog it all up by asking how questions. See, that God did that. That's the point. How? They weren't concerned with that. And so insofar as we're reading Genesis 1, we shouldn't be concerned with that. Um, 
And it just, it mucks things up. People start, when we introduce those kind of things. It's like asking, well, how can you have a morning and evening when you don't even have a sudden? And, and people lose their faith over stuff like that. And it's just so unnecessary. So here's the bottom line, because I'm going over. And I'm going to be in trouble, but here. Um, if you believe the earth is 10,000 years old, fine. Really. You'll have a hard time basing it on Genesis 1. But, but if, you know, if, if, as you look at the scientific evidence and everything else, if you come to that conclusion, that's fine. Just don't make it a litmus test for orthodoxy. And, we, and it's wonderful. But all of us, I pray... In hearing this, put this in our toolbox. And even if you are a young earth creationist, know that most people can't agree with that. And don't think you have to convince them of that position to get them to come to Christ. Rather, show them that there's a difference of opinion here. And here's one way of looking at it for biblical reasons why Genesis 1 is not in conflict with science. The Christian faith is not in conflict with science. The Christian faith ought to be loving science because science is just studying God's creation. And God's creation is good. So hooray for science. That's a good thing. Embrace it. Don't be paranoid and all that from it. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. God uses it in wonderful ways. And I pray all of us, wherever we stand in this issue, that we are prepared, as the Bible says, to give an answer to those who ask us questions about the faith. Right? And, and, and be able to share with them, like, that's no big deal. It's no big deal. Here's one way of looking at it. All right? Will you stand, evangelist and missionary? Hey, that was good, wasn't it? Listen, if you've never heard this view before, the view that Greg Boyd presented in this sermon then what you just heard from him is a really good introduction. It's a great summary to how to read Genesis 1 from a theological, a literary, poetic perspective. And in fact, uh, in the next sermon in his series, which I just listened to recently as well, he goes on to look at the what it means in later in Genesis 1 for Adam and Eve, for mankind, for you and I to be created in the image of God. And you can get that sermon by subscribing to Greg Boyd's podcast over on iTunes. There is a link to that in the show notes. And if this sort of explanation of Genesis 1 intrigues you and you want to learn more, listen, I invite you to also subscribe to my own podcast on iTunes. It's the One Verse podcast. You can just go over there and search for it, or there's a link to it in the show notes. And the reason is because... Before I ever knew Greg was doing this, I started my own podcast to uh, look at, we're going to study through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and we've begun in Genesis. And I am spending one episode, one show, each verse. So so we spend 30 minutes looking at Genesis 1-1, and then in the next show, 30 minutes on Genesis 1-2. And so we're taking an in-depth, detailed look, showing how... Uh, you cannot read this uh, scientifically, but if we read it theologically, if we read it from a literary, a, a poetic perspective, then what Moses is writing here makes an awful lot more sense. And in that, uh, in those episodes, I also provide you resources and books and articles that you will also be able to research and read on your own so that you can study this sort of approach to Genesis 1 on your own. And uh, when, when you do this, we discover in this, in, in my, on the One Verse podcast, some amazing truths from Genesis 1 about God, about ourselves, and about God's creation. So if that interests you, I hope to see you there. Hey, and listen, if uh, something Greg said sparked a thought, a comment, a question, or maybe you figure that he's just out to lunch or something, then uh, feel free to leave a comment in the show notes for this show. You can do that by going to theology.fm slash Greg Boyd slash zero four. And that will get you to the show notes, but also to the comment section for this episode. And you can leave comments and I will try to respond and even send those off to Greg and maybe he will respond as well. 
Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode of Theology.fm.